Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, throughout Donald Trump's presidency, media outlets across the nation were reluctant to label him a liar or a racist when his actions merited those terms, or to cover white supremacy as more than a fringe movement. Now in the wake of the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, some news organizations are grappling with the consequences of whitewash political coverage or failure to call out the president's lies more aggressively. In this hour, a media reckoning and what must change moving forward. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The Trump presidency ends tomorrow, nearly two weeks after he incited a violent insurrection that left lawmakers and officers fearing for their lives and democracy on shakier ground. Many in the reality-based news industry are working hard to cover the fallout from the attack accurately and comprehensively, while also reflecting on whether we did enough to call out white supremacy, Trump's lies and racism, and if that contributed to how America got here. Joining me now is Celeste Headley, a journalist formerly with National Public Radio, a speaker and author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and also of Do Nothing. Celeste Headley, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Karen Atia, Global Opinions Editor for The Washington Post. Hi, Karen Atia. Thanks for joining us as well. Hi, thanks for having me. And Karen, I'd like to start with you. I mean, we're about to inaugurate a new president while dealing with the aftermath of a deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol that was fueled by the lie of a rigged election and racism that will outlast, of course, the Trump presidency. So, you know, I'd love to hear what you think is the duty of journalists at this time, what what they need to do to really cover this accurately and, and in service to the public. Yeah, it's a very it's a very good question. I think for in many 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 ways, uh, this is a moment that uh, many of us, uh, those of us who are journalists of color, black journalists, this is a moment in which we are looking at what's happened and we are seeing in many ways the, in some ways almost the you know logical <laughs> conclusion of all of the. Uh, rhetoric and uh, coddling of and overt appeals to white supremacy and to xenophobia um, and to, frankly, uh, white entitlement to this country, right? Um, so I think many of us are, are watching this um, feeling in many ways uh, the sense of we've been 
screaming and, and yelling about this uh, for a long time. Um, and here it is, the violence playing out in our faces. I mean, I think that um, right now is, is a time um, and a necessary time both to try to, to understand and to grapple with what is happening um, in terms of this violence, but also for reflection, also for, you know, uh, in many ways it, it just feels like uh, this, we should have seen this coming in many yeah. ways, right? Um, and this is not the first time at all that this country has seen insurrections, has seen massive uh, violence in support of white supremacy in support of keeping this country uh, for themselves. So I, I guess I sit and I'm, <laughs> I mean, journalists, we're paid, we're paid to try to be right. We're paid to try to get the facts right. And I would just say, this is not a moment that feels good to be right about calling out the ills of this country that will last even after Trump leaves office and the Biden-Harris administration um, comes in tomorrow. Are you seeing signs that we, especially in the coverage of the, insurre in, of the insurrection, that we are more willing to name it, to name white supremacy, to name the roots of, of, of what has caused this? We have a long way to go, but I was just wondering if, if you felt like the most recent coverage, there were some signs that we were moving in the right direction. Well, I think it, it, it would have been very, very hard to not call a spade a spade in, in this instance, yes. um, perhaps because there, there, was, there was death, um, because there was injury. Um, I remember at the, the very first day or so, a, a bit of jousting over the language in terms of what to call uh, the people at the Capitol. Were they protesters? Were they rioters? Were they terrorists? Were they extremists? Were they... You know, nice. um, and so to a certain extent, um, even seeing people applying uh, terrorism, domestic terrorism to what we saw, uh, I, I guess I sat and I was like, oh, OK, that's progress. We're not calling them thousands of lone wolves, right, <laughs> um, like we would with, uh, with uh, mass shooters, right? Like when, when like wolves run together in a pack of hundreds and thousands, that kind of indicates that maybe this was something bigger than just, uh, you know, uh, aggrieved individual, but rather um, terrorism, which is a political um, me uh, means to achieve a political end using violence and fear that this was coordinated, that this was premeditated in, in many ways, that we do have these militias who see nothing wrong with using the threat of violence in order to achieve what they want, right? So in some ways I was heartened that the language is beginning to shift and we're beginning to call things for what they are. Um, that being said, I wish that we, we are seeing a lot of coverage of who these people are, where they're from and, and mm. uh, attempts to you know, humanize and explain and to understand and how, how could they have done this? How could we have uh, seen people go along in this crowd? And I wish um, at, that we would hear more from the people who were terrorized by this, who were traumatized by this. Uh, Washington DC is not just you know, the seat of the government. People live there, people work there. I, live and work there. Um, I think one of the best pieces uh, of journalism that really drove home how 
how scary and violent this was, was uh, a BuzzFeed article by Emmanuel Felton, who interviewed the Black Capitol, uh, Capitol Police staffers and the, the pain and the, the anger and the rage that they felt while still trying to do their jobs to protect, uh, to protect the Capitol um, against people who identified themselves as military or police officers and what that felt like. And it's just, I wish we had more of that to really yes. understand the truth of where we're at right now. We still have a long way to go, don't we, Celeste Headley? We do. And to that end, I, I'd like to mention that right now, the Daily from the New York Times, the top uh, story is where they spoke to fans of Trump about the the riot and their feelings before Joe Biden's inauguration. Just two stories down from that, the view from a Republican who voted to impeach. Um, we are still under this impression that the views of people of color are, can be known and understood and are not all that interesting. They're not that complicated. We know what Stacey Abrams think. We can predict what Stacey Abrams is going to believe, her opinion on all kinds of different things. But certainly if somebody, some uh, suburban mom is going to leave her realty practice and go to the Capitol and, and rise up in an attempted insurrection, that's interesting to us. Um, our, our industry is still ruled by white supremacy. I'm sorry, that's where we are. The decisions that are made about what stories get told, whose voices are heard, are made by largely white males. And their instincts, their much lauded news instincts, are viewed, sometimes unbeknownst to them, are, are influenced, I should say, by the, the, the white supremacy, the racism and the sexism in which they've been raised and surrounded by their entire lives. And rather than standing by the work of their reporters and journalists, who very often were ready to call lies lies mm. back in 2016, uh, the editors toned it down. The editors ran afraid from politicians who might call them biased. And this is how we end up where we are. Has it changed since the interaction? I think so, but I also think it's temporary. And if we're going to really see this as a difference, we have to stay on it. Well, Francisco tweets, it took too, too long for lies to be called lies by the news media. Trump exploited that to the country's detriment. And of course, listeners, if you have reflections or thoughts, questions about media coverage of the last four years, you can share them by tweeting at KQED Forum or posting your comments on Facebook, emailing them to forum at kqed.org or calling 866-733-6786. So Celeste Headley, I mean, I, I'd love to just unpack a little bit about why the news media was so hesitant um, about calling lies lies, about calling racist things racist things. You know, we displayed a kind of um, naivete, <laughs> uh, an, an idealism. Uh, the, the news media was operating under this idea of this unspoken ethics, this code by which we've operated for so many decades uh, of fair play. And the the, the tr not only Donald Trump, but his entire administration was extremely good at exploiting that because they didn't play fair. Um, we don't have any mechanisms in place in our industry for how to respond to rule breaking, to the breaking of these proprietary proprieties, these uh, the unseemly behavior. And you have all these um, editors and uh, and um, content directors who didn't want to descend to that level. Um, and that left us unprepared to fight back. Why did we not call them lies? Because we have never really called something a lie when a president has said it before. 
and 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 I want to go back also to this idea that we don't stand as as an industry we have not stood by the reporting of our reporters. There is a, a, a editorial judgment in place sometimes from executives who are not journalists influencing whether we claim to know a fact or whether we claim we kind of know it. I mean, obviously you can't prove a negative. So when someone makes a claim that you can't prove doesn't exist, it makes it difficult. At the same time, you have incredibly ethical and smart reporters out there who can tell you if something is a lie or not. And we need to allow those journalists to drive the coverage rather than allowing um, the people at the top to make that decision that's often political and it's more about liability than anything else. And too often, what would happen? I mean, Karen Atiyah, as you were saying, black journalists were saying this, journalists of color were saying this, but when they did, what would often be the reaction? You know, I, I can't, in, in, the, in these moments, I can't help but, but think of uh, um, Jamel Hill, uh, the ESPN, uh, formerly ESPN um, journalist who was uh, reprimanded and, and suspended from ESPN uh, for calling Donald Trump a uh, white supremacist. Right. Um, and it's like now it's like she was just calling a spade a spade. I think the reaction or, or the fear in some ways, the, the message that we would get is that it's not only would we not be listened to or, or called hysterical or, or emotional, it's that there were professional, possible professional consequences, right? Yeah. Um, and there always have been, there's always consequences for um, speaking out um, against white supremacy. Um, there's always been consequences um, for speaking out about racism. That is not new. Uh, but when it comes to the Trump administration, it, it really felt quite broad. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. After four years of covering the Trump presidency, we're asking what lessons the media industry has learned and what must change moving forward. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to join the conversation. How do you think the media has covered Trump, race, politics? What do you think is the duty of journalism in this moment? What worries you most about our media landscape? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Karen Atia, Global Opinions Editor for The Washington Post, and Celeste Headley, an award-winning journalist formerly with National Public Radio, a speaker and author of We Need to Talk and Do Nothing. And let me go to Caller Pete in Pacifica. Hi, Pete. Join us. I have a question about the uh, absence of any kind of comment on the role of militant Christian nationalism in all of this. It's the very nexus of these things you're not supposed to talk about, politics and religion. And I, I, it really upsets me when I see or read anything talking about this, this uh, militancy in politics that doesn't tie in 
the influence and organizational power of churches and fundamentalist Christianity. Uh, when, when are these going to be tied together, and when are we going to start talking about that? Pete, thanks. Celeste Headley, I mean, in terms of making this connection, did we fail here? I think that we did. Um, I, I think there have been, has been some incredible reporting on the white evangelicals who have driven Trump's support and stood by him no matter what. Yeah. And as a, just a recommendation, Jack Jenkins uh, reports on religion in the U.S. and is just absolutely on top of this and has been for a very long time. I feel like this has been well covered. Um, whether or not we've really examined the connection between that and, and political donors or politicians, I, I'm not sure. That's not my area. Um, I did want to add, though, just uh, because of uh, Karen's remark right before the break to to remind everyone about Alexis Johnson, who was a reporter at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and was pulled off of covering the Black Lives Matter protests because her editors told her that she sent out a tweet that showed bias. At the same time, a white staff member, Josh Axelrod, um, was also pulled into the office to be talked about bias in his tweets, but said, go ahead and keep covering them. This is a teachable moment for you. So, you know, it's it, there's, there's no question about whether there is a disparity in treatment between a black reporter who is not seen to be able to be objective about issues of race, oppression, inequality, and white males who are seen to be capable of covering absolutely any story objectively. And this is a key part of the reckoning that's happening in newsrooms, right, Celeste Headley, or at least needs to be happening. This notion of that that, that people of color cannot cover things because of issues or questions about objectivity or bias. And frankly, um, this also kind of ties into the question from your listener, because someone who is Muslim is not seen to be objective on, on issues uh, of Islam, and yet a white Christian is seen to be able to report on on um, any kind of religion or, or there's a standard of what is objectivity. And it, it's one of the reasons why um, so many people in public media, at least, are trying to break away from this idea of objectivity, just as any kind of target to shoot for. No one is objective. What we really need to be aiming for is accuracy and fairness. What I'm struck by, Karen Atia, are, are the ways that you write columns as if where you write about America as if it's being written by the foreign press. Can you talk about why you do that and why it's important to sort of remove ourselves and look at ourselves? Well, from from a more sort of personal standpoint, I tend to do those when things just seem so absurd in this country that um, sometimes a little dark humor and satire um, is the only way to, to deal with it. Yeah, you know, I, I think in, in so many ways, um, it, it can be very difficult uh, to look at ourselves objectively. And I guess for me, um, taking the eye of a, of a foreign reporter or a foreign expert is a way to zero out that lens and just look at the language, right, that, that we would use to describe what's happening. I mean, we would be talking about you know, state security forces and, and tribal militias. And we would be, um, you know, discussing, uh, you know, slightly, uh, <laughs> we'd be talking about how people who aren't that informed about America are still yet called to be experts on America and to comment on, on what's happening. Um, but honestly, I think for me, a lot of what I, I guess I'm trying to do with those pieces is to really just 
chip away at this American exceptionalism that creeps through our education system, creeps through our cultural output, creeps through our media, which is that we are the best at what we do. We've made a lot of progress. We are in a post-racial society. Everyone else is a developing country. And I write those to remind ourselves that we are very much a developing country in many, many ways, right? As we're not only dealing with racism, white supremacy, a, a racial caste system in this country, but also um, levels of, uh, or a pandemic, levels of poverty, of hunger that shouldn't exist here. So um, any chance I can take to, um, again, through I guess a little bit of, of humor and, and rhetorical devices, just turn the lens back on ourselves, um, I, I try to do. Yes, turning the lens back on ourselves. And I mean, Celeste Headley, in, in many ways, when we do examine how we've covered the Trump presidency for the Trump presidency, for example, in the last four years, we are turning the lens on ourselves. And and I can't help but ask as we sort of dissect all of these ways that that we fell short, what it really says about the industry's interests and bottom lines. Can you shed some light on that? Um, I think it's an excellent question. Uh, in terms of bottom line, you know, there's a lot of people at this point calling for a reinstitution of the fairness doctrine um, that was first introduced in the late 1940s. Um, we, over the period of time between that the establishment of that fairness doctrine, doctrine basically turned news into a, a profit generating model that had to satisfy a large number of stockholders. And at that point, we were in trouble. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about the dying newspaper industry. But I went back and did an audit of the financials of many of these newspapers that went under only to find or, or that had massive layoffs claiming that they were broke, only to find out that, in fact, many of those newspapers were profitable at the time that they laid off hundreds of people, mostly the journalists and content providers. Um, the, the problem was they weren't profitable enough to satisfy the shareholders when um, companies began investing, outside companies began investing in the news. At that point, by some estimates, uh, these newspapers had returned like a 30 to 35% profit margin. And over time, that has obviously diminished with the rise of the internet and, and uh, other uh, formats and platforms. And so as those profits have gone down, shareholders and investment companies have decided, well, they're just not returning the profits we want. We better stream slim these down. So you can see that it becomes this problem that although uh, our content, our, our journalism and writing is being consumed at an at an historic level, it's not enough to satisfy the Dow Jones, and that's a problem. I I'm not, don't know if I support the reestablishment of the fairness doctrine. It would require a great deal of tweaking and editing in order to make that work. But I do support the end to this idea that the news has to return a profit. Karen Etty, I wonder what you think, what role you feel like that's played in terms of how the news is delivered and who we turn to for news. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we can't really discuss the media without discussing the bottom line. Like, look, I mean, I think we saw um, in many ways after the uh, Trump victory that there was this 
impulse, this this sense that, you know, Trump voters, Trump supporters were forgotten, right? And if we just produced enough content to try to appeal to them, we could gain an audience, right? Yes. And this goes across across the media. And so that we could, and, and it's been said by executives, right, that Trump in some ways was good for the bottom line. Um, and I, and I think now, um, as we are again seeing that um, Trump voters, uh, white evangelicals, that our, our country is so much more than that, right? Um, and I think this is where uh, this is where I think it, it could be difficult. Again, as we're sitting here um, speaking, as Celeste mentioned in the earlier uh, part of the conversation, we're still seeing the the addiction is hard to kick you know the new york times is it has a whole podcast on um how trump voters are are feeling right. today it's been it's been profit and this isn't new i mean this is coming from years i grew up in texas actually and i remember listening to conservative talk radio uh it was big business um the the feelings the the uh aggrieved uh, personalities of, of Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh. I mean, this has been around for a long time. So I think part of this is, um, again, like as we're seeing the capital, the physical, like DC as a city being fortified, being uh, strengthened to try to protect the inauguration tomorrow. I really think that the fourth estate, this institution needs to really think about how diversity was never just about giving black people, women, people of color jobs. It was, for many of us, it was always about knowing that diverse workforces, diverse content was, diversity was a defense, was a defense against um, the myths of white supremacy, was a defense against, um, the, in some ways, just the distortions, I think, that uh, that we were fed, right? That Trump voters, that white people in general were the ones and their, their feelings and how they saw politics, that their politics were the only ones that mattered. And as we're seeing now, seeing how black voters, um, indigenous Native American voters really turned out now, this is a case for us to course correct to make sure that we are doing our jobs in representing the truth of this country because the future of this country depends on it. Well, Arden writes, for decades I've contended that the, quote, legitimate news media are bootlickers of the establishment. During my time in the Navy, my eyes were opened wide to the racism and right-wing aggressive sentiments in America particularly in the military. Now we're seeing this rot since the foundation of our republic in plain view. And this listener tweets, they've given Trump way too much airtime. It was a gift, good or bad. Trump does not care as long as he is at the center of attention. And Danny in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Danny. Hi, everyone. Uh, so I kind of have a, have a two-part question. So how do we hold large institutions uh, of conservative media, like, for example, Fox News, accountable for kind of radicalizing their audience of hundreds of millions of people? And also, one interesting thing that I've noticed prop up um, across the Trump presidency in the past four years is these little fires kind of on social media, for example, um, ultra right wing extreme content that's trying to um, kind of radicalize uh, like teenagers. And that's really alarming. And so uh, I guess 
two-part question, how do we hold the big guys accountable? And also, how do we put out these little fires before they start spreading? Thank you. Hmm. Celeste Headley, your thoughts? Um, the way that you hold someplace like Fox News accountable is you make it not profitable anymore. Fox News is an incredibly profitable operation. Um, one of the things that has always influenced Fox, if you go out through the past, is when they've lost advertisers. Um, that's the way that you hold them accountable. In terms of the social media posts, it's really important that you give no oxygen to those type of posts. Um, when you retweet something, even just to say, look at this, isn't this awful what this person says, what you're what you're doing is, is amplifying that view. Uh, the algorithms don't pay any attention to whether you said it was awful or whether you said it was great. The algorithms just see that that's a popular tweet that's getting retweeted a lot. And so they're going to push them up further um, in their trending topics. So the best way to respond to those kind of messages on social media is do not respond at all. Uh, I think there is a larger conversation going on, obviously, among the, the, the platforms like Twitter and Facebook about how they are to deal with these that kind of content. Um, and I also think there's going to be a governmental piece as well as the Biden transition team has announced that it will investigate QAnon, for example, as a law enforcement issue. But those of us here, we have, I mean, I really think uh, our audience has a huge role to play. And, and I, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I want to go back to the funding model. Because the reason we have so many pundits spouting their ridiculously stupid, ill-informed opinions is because pundits are cheap. You find someone who is very articulate, says provocative things, and you just keep bringing them back and they give their opinion on every possible topic, even when they have no experience in or expertise in, rather than doing the work like KQED and other public radio station does of tracking down exactly the right expert and then having to make sure they have the good microphone and all those other things. That takes time. It's expensive. Pundits, pundits are cheap and easy. And that's a big part of why we've ended up where we are. Well, you know, one of the things that I think about, Karen Atia, is we're doing some soul searching, right, in, 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 I don't know, quote, legitimate media, quote, mainstream media, quote, reality-based media. I don't know. Choose your term to try to distinguish yourself from right-wing media. The reality is, is that, you know, half of America is not listening. I mean, Fox will add, as Celeste Lee was talking about pundits, another hour of opinion. That's, that's the direction they're heading in, in terms of um, how to move forward uh, post the Trump presidency. And, and at the same time, that was an hour where there was news. So this notion that they will will sacrifice news. Well, I don't necessarily want to, you know, dissect what Fox is doing, because I, I don't want to, I think too often we've used that to absolve ourselves from really looking at our own spaces and really um, wrestling with those things. I do wonder if that, if that worries you in terms of our media landscape moving forward, and, and what, what media needs to do to be able to combat that. Yeah, see, I mean, um, I think this is a double-edged, triple-edged, quadruple-edged sword in many ways, which the internet and, and social media. I mean, on one end, um, social media, uh, these alternative platforms to uh, mainstream media, um, whatever you want to call it, has given marginalized voices a voice. So Black voices, Indigenous voices, women's voices, um, 
being able to to connect and to um, offer, you know, our, our perspectives on, on how we see this country. Um, that being said, uh, it provides um, opportunities for, um, you know, alternative voices, which includes conspiracies, which includes racism, which includes, um, and I, I wanna, one thing I would say, I think about my industry and where we need to do so much better is I think for, a little too long, we treated the online world as something that was not real almost, right? Like I think uh, uh, saying like, oh, okay, yeah, people are on Twitter, people are on, you know, it's just, it's just social media. And we didn't treat it as, uh, as a legitimate, legitimate public sphere spaces. Um, and I think now, you know, even with, you know, as we're seeing with uh, QAnon and, and Parler, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of my colleagues who are of a, you know, are perhaps of the older generation, right? Like it's harder, perhaps, for them to perhaps even understand um, this world that we're operating in. So again, I think it goes back to making sure that we have journalists and reporters who understand um, online culture um, cultures. Uh, I think that will be a part of it, and it's a it's a difficult um, it's a difficult question. We're at a point in this country where we cannot agree on a set of common facts. Right. How do we get together if we can't even agree that the sky is blue? We'll have more with Karen Atia of the Washington Post and Celeste Headley, formerly of NPR, a public speaker on media issues. After the break, I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Karen Atia, Global Opinions Editor for The Washington Post, and Celeste Headley, uh, speaker and author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter and Do Nothing. Celeste Headley is also a journalist formerly with National Public Radio. You, our listeners, are with us. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. What are your questions, your reflections on how the media has covered Trump, race, politics? What worries you about the media landscape? What outlets do you think did a good job? And a lot of you, our listeners, are weighing in. Doug writes, I don't understand why the mainstream media soft-pedaled references to Trump statements with ambiguous terms like baseless or unfounded. They only recently called them as they are, lies. I can't soft-pedal it when my eight-year-old lies. She'd realize that she can, can't get away with it, that she can get away with it. Trump is a child who needs to be treated as such. Eve tweets, the problem is everyone having their own news channel, in essence. People get their news from Fox and people who get their news from MSNBC will have two entirely different viewpoints. And yeah, Trump helped make this happen. That sort of underscores your point earlier, Karen Atia, about our inability to respond to facts. 
Celeste Headley, I'd like you to respond to Lisa's comment. Lisa writes, naivete is a pathetic excuse. The news media leadership are white dominated and could not get past their white blind spots. Anyone with eyes could see he was a racist liar since long before he was president. Many journalists of color recognized this and were criticized for their views. The mainstream media, including KQED, twisted itself into knots to rationalize and make excuses for his lies put people of color in high places in the media machines, and we'll see better reporting. I mean, Celeste Headley, of course, you have just come out uh, with your vision for uh, for anti-racist leadership, basically, anti-racist coverage in public media. Can you talk a little bit about your what you are what you are seeing as the way to move forward and your reaction to Lisa's point? Yeah, and it's it's not my vision that we just came out with an, an open letter called an anti-racist future, a vision and plan for the transformation of public media. At this point, it has nearly 400 signatories along with eight different organizations that signed on. Um, this is the product of the work of dozens of incredibly brilliant colleagues who put in months of work and research into creating a document that's not just a demand for reform, but an actual guide, a roadmap to how we move forward. Honestly, I can't add too much to what your listener wrote there. It's absolutely correct. And I myself was uh, reprimanded and corrected uh, for trying to say that the president was racist. I was told not to call him racist when he very clearly is. Absolutely, some of the blind spots caused that that we see, are seeing in news media is caused by the fact that it is still a white male dominated industry, and more importantly, it's white male dominated in leadership. It doesn't matter how many uh, journalists of color you add to your staff if you are not empowering them, if they are not actually guiding coverage and and choosing what stories to tell and whose voices get heard. It's 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 absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, look, we have a plan for how uh, public radio and public media can move forward. Frankly, this particular plan will work for just about any journalist or organization. And um, it won't work, though, if the leadership is just not ready to make meaningful change. Comfort is our enemy at this point. Rachel writes, the biggest problem in my view is false equivalency in reporting both sides of an issue. Reporting of really bad stuff is not honest when it's offset by, on the other hand, reports that are, that are in no way comparable in their motives or impact. This is not fair and balanced. It is a lie. You know, Karen Atia, when you were talking about, you know, efforts to grow the audience as a bottom line issue, it also, I feel like very much feeds into, you know, this this tendency towards both sideism as well to try to grow the audience. Yeah. And I think it, it comes very much down to how race and racism is all too often um, misunderstood or outright um, distorted, frankly, by um, those who feel they don't have um, a dog in the fight. Look like, when something is or someone is being called a racist, the, the knee-jerk reaction is that you're calling somebody a bad name, um, right? And not that racism is a force, has been a force that has shaped our society, much like economics, much like politics. Race has been one of the defining forces in this country since its founding, right? And so the both sides issue it's almost as if, you know, too often racism 
is treated as an idea to be debated, both sides, you know, and not an ideology, not a, a sort of political force to be defeated. And again, I think that um, the discomfort with, with that, the discomfort, it, there's a, a knee-jerk reaction to, to going to the sort of intellectual cow because then it's just like sports, right? And this is a problem with treating politics like sports, that there's one team, there's a red team, there's a blue team. And if you give both sides a chance, everybody's going to buy tickets to the game and not understanding that race and particularly white supremacy has always had violent real world consequences for those who are uh, not only the victims of it, but I think what we're seeing after the January 6th incident is that this whole white people also suffer from white supremacy because ultimately, and I think this is what I would want industry leaders to, to understand about how to write and read and talk about this country. It's ultimately about power dynamics and it's ultimately about what people will do what has to to keep power and so i i just i i i find um i find I'm, it's good that that this is being challenged this is being debated in some ways i agree with celeste i worry that it's temporary and actually feel like the risk of complacency is even higher with the biden administration coming in that will feel like okay we got through it we learned a couple of lessons. We'll do a couple of our op-eds. But then, again, uh, not fundamentally looking at how our media uh, and how our white male-dominated media has led us um, to this point and recognizing that we could be back here again if we don't change. Yes, I'm thinking about... Uh... Secretary Pompeo's tweet about how wokeism and multiculturalism, all the isms are not who America is. He wrote censorship, wokeness, political correctness is akin to like authoritarianism cloaked as moral righteousness. I felt like in that you were seeing the line being drawn again and something that uh, a strong need, a strong reality based evidence based media needs to push back on. Just one more point on this. This listener writes, Caroline, even reputable news organizations like NPR continue to give voice and legitimacy to well-known white supremacist think tanks that spread disinformation. Just this morning, NPR cited the Center for Immigration Studies, which claims to be objective while pushing debunked claims and fudged statistics to push for racist, cruel, white supremacist immigration policy. And I mean, yeah, I mean, we have to be on a learning path, NPR included, KQED included, and we have a responsibility to get better. Let me go to David in El Cerrito. Oh, sorry, Celeste Headley, you wanted to add something? Oh, well, or a Karen just, Atiyah, I, sorry. Yeah, if I could just jump in. I mean, I think um, one, of the, one of the examples I remember, you know, with NPR, um, not just, you know, platforming think tanks, but just I remember all these profiles of, say, Jason Kessler, the, the head of the Unite the Right rally, right? And brought on air uh, around the time of the Charlottesville um, rallies, white supremacist rallies. And it's like, he gets on uh, trying to claim, you know, that, that what he's doing isn't racism, but then he goes and he, he ranks the races by intelligence on air, right? And there is so much backlash to that because it's like, why would you put someone like that and why would why would we put these you know white nationalists with cool haircuts on and i think the the reasoning at the time was that well if we just air their views clearly like the audience will reject them clearly like they're out of date and they're ridiculous 
right? But I think I, at the time, and I still think that's a little true today, is that I think too many uh, of my, you know, white peers almost look at racism as like this kind of odd spectacle is so taboo. And of course, you know, somebody espousing these views must be, you know, they're clearly wrong. But what we do when we platform these people is we give legitimacy to it. Um, again, the choices that we make, it's not to say that, you know, these things should not be covered, but a straight up, you know, interview where there's no pushback, where there's no context, it's like we also have to think about, okay, how are we, just like any hazardous material, how are we going to handle something that is, you know, poisonous and hot and can burn us? We might, we probably would try to wear gloves, try to put protections in place, you know? So I just think, um, I hope yes. that we get to a point, particularly also in public media, again, where racism is treated as a very dangerous ideology that it is and that there are special protocols in place for for dealing um, and explaining these issues. And let me go to David in El Cerrito. Hi, David. Hey, um, I have a lot to say. I won't say it. I can fill up an hour. <laughs> I was radio talk show host. I was the producer of the Savage Nation, Michael Savage. I was a writer for Michael Savage, and I've seen it from the inside. And there are so many reasons that it exists. The people that used to call these shows that we would leave them on hold for hours because they were the craziest among them have now become borderline mainstream. And they've moved these hosts to the right as well. You look at Tucker Carlson, for an example. This guy has found a new way to make money in his world. When he wasn't this way 15, 20 years ago, but he is now because he can make money. And the GM of the station, not the program director, because he doesn't exist. The general manager who brings in the money decides what the programming is. That's why the programming in the right-wing media is so boring and so terrible and so uninteresting and so unfunny. Because they're only going after the money, and they know where the money exists. And it exists in that 35% that is loyal, and they are cultists. And Dr. Robert Cialdini in the book Influence writes all about it. And if you're not going to get on their playing field and fight fire with fire, you're going to lose because the greed and the money has no boundaries, has no morals, has no ethics, and it's going to dominate. And they're going to push, push, push. And they know that eventually the other side will give up and not push back. And being on the interior of it for years and watching it, it's disgusting. It's horrifying. And to think that those extreme right callers that used to call the Limbaugh's and the Savages and the Becks are now almost mainstream is really an impossible thing to live with in this country. Wow. So that's sadly, I mean, after hearing what David is saying, are you optimistic? Uh, <laughs> are you optimistic <laughs> about changes in terms of our media landscape? Let, let's narrow it a little bit because he's also just talking so much more broadly about just the state of our, our nation. But and I, if so, I, I'd I love am. to hear what's driving it because, and the reason I, I turned to you and asked you this is because just you know, writing that vision plan at least shows shows some hope, right? <laughs> that things can change. So the very first, the, the, the letter that we wrote was the culmination of a, months of 
um, online meetings that I held with a, a lot of my colleagues in public media. And at the very first meeting, the first question I asked was, so what do we want to do? Do we want to burn public radio down and leave it behind? Um, or do we want to try to save it? And it was split 50-50. 50-50. And these, again, are people who are in and of public media, who believe in the mission, who are passionate about what we do. We're split halfway on on whether to walk away or stay and and work on it. I I am optimistic. And as you see, many of the people in our group ended up on that side. I still believe there's an opportunity for change within my industry, but that window is kind of closing. You know, I have, you know, I'm 50 years old. I have been working on issues of diversity and inclusion in my industry, along with many, many others, Farai Chidea, Doug Mitchell, many others for decades and the needle has barely moved um so it's kind of like we keep giving our industry another chance and another chance and another chance because we so believe in the power of the press the freedom of the press um we believe that what we're doing is important and it is we're the only industry that is actually specifically enshrined and protected in the constitution we're important to our democracy and i think we cannot disconnect what happened in the Capitol, um, the attempt in insurrection from the, the struggles that have been, that our industry is going through. So am I optimistic? Cautiously so. Every person of color, I think, is sort of cautiously optimistic. I mean, I feel like we all live in a state of cautious optimism. Yes. Well, Maddie writes, thank you for doing the show during the 2016 election. I remember screaming at my radio when they referred to Trump's blatant lies as, quote, bending the truth, and also the nonstop airing the audio of his lies with very little coverage of anything Hillary Clinton was saying other than to ask about her emails. I felt that the election showed a colossal failure of the media. And Sean writes, the question facing the media now is how to cover Trump going forward. He will be an ex-president. Why should his every tweet or other communication be covered by the media? If the media writ large do that, it will set him up for a run in 2024, or at least he will be seen as the, quote, kingmaker in the Republican Party. I mean, Karen Atia, would love to get your thoughts on Sean and also, you know, just the position you hold at the Post as, as Global Opinions editor. Are you trying to push things internally? Yeah, I, the the call um, about the... I Michael guess. Savage show, yeah. Michael Savage show is is show. I again, growing up in in Texas, is not, I wasn't very politically aware, but I would listen to Michael Savage every evening because I found it entertaining, and I found it he was just angry, and somehow that was attractive, even though I didn't quite understand what he was saying and whether or not it was true. Um, and so I think about that a lot. I think about how, uh, and, and as the caller said, the intersection of uh, not only uh, like racism, yes, but the intersection of catering to, you know, aggrieved white male audiences and capitalism is intertwined. Um, look, we, we live in a country where uh, people used to, you know, when there were lynchings of, of black people, you know, white people used to go and for a spectacle and send postcards from it and have picnics by it. It's always been uh, a, a, a spectacle again, right? And I think that's part of why 
uh, Trump was such a complicated figure. Look, I also grew up with Trump being in the media. I used to watch <laughs> wrestling. I, I remember Home Alone 2. I used to watch Sex in the City. He was in the American psyche um, for you know decades before this. And it's not going to be that easy to just remove him just because you know he's lost this job, right, uh, as president. Um, and I'm not, I don't think we're prepared for that. I don't think we've seen that. And um, this idea that he still is a kingmaker and an ex-president and still at this point at least would have all the privileges afforded um, of an ex-president, I, I, I don't think, I'm, I'm a little, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm, and I think this is why these conversations are so important because we, we definitely need to think about it. Again, given that so far, um, especially if Trump himself and his enablers escape consequences for what has happened, it will just mean the next time is going to be worse, right? So to your question about my position, I mean, I do what I can, of course, to, to platform um, alternative uh, you know, people who are not you know, heard from often, uh, international viewpoints. Um, I think all of us have, all of us, no matter what we're doing, we have the capacity to do what we can to try to, you know, push for change and push for progress. But yes, the long road. It's a long road. And I want to thank you, Karen Atia and Celeste Headley for having this conversation with us and thank our listeners for holding us accountable. Blanca Torres produced today's segment. Thank you, Blanca. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.